chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Revelation 3, we'll read 7 through 13. And to the angel of the right, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hath kept my word, and hath not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will no more uh, out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Please be seated. Well, thank you for the reading tonight. We're very always. To listen to the reading of God's Word is always a privilege. And thank you for the beautiful singing that we've had this evening. Uh, Daniel, you've done a wonderful job in leading our singing. We're very grateful for that and the fine prayers which have been offered tonight. Very grateful for these sincere men who lead us in our worship service. If you're visiting with us, we're delighted to have you, and we encourage you to come back whenever you possibly can. And if you're a visitor tonight, we are involved in what we call a Sunday night seminar. Sunday night seminar is a little more in-depth with regard to the topic at hand, and the topic is the Church of the New Testament. And so we're looking at different congregations of the Lord in the New Testament. And tonight we continue with our discussion of the church at Philadelphia. I started this last Sunday night, and I knew just as soon as I got into this discussion it would take more than one Sunday night lesson to do a proper job with it. And even then there's more material than one can completely convey. So we'll continue with our discussion tonight of the Church of Philadelphia. The outline that I have for you tonight is the same as I had last Sunday night. But if you do not have one and would like to have one, these deacons are here to give you an outline. If you'll raise your hand, they'll get you an outline. They in turn will help. That'll turn will help you have a record of the study that we're involved in, not only last Sunday night, but also for tonight. So our seminar continues on the... Uh, different congregations of the New Testament. And let me review just very briefly some of the things that I said last uh, Sunday night so that it'll have more meaning, the context will have more meaning for us. One of the things that we wanted to look at and did look at was the city itself. It was a, uh, a very strategically located city, strategically located for uh, the Roman Empire, 
and the spread of the Roman culture, but also for the spread of the gospel of Christ. It was one which had been through uh, a lot of um, earthquakes and calamities, which I think is implied in some of the instruction that God gives the church here in Revelation chapter 3. But it also was a place filled with a great deal of religious background and basically a pagan background. There were pagans there. Greek culture, of course, had fostered such. Roman culture continued such. And then, of course, you also have the Jewish background that's there in the city of Philadelphia. And they had a rather strong and a very uh, uh, devout uh, portion of uh, Jewish followers, which I think comes up a little later in our discussion in verse 9. Uh, So the background of the city had some importance to us in consideration, but I think more important than that are the assertions concerning Christ that I'd like to review just briefly to give us some hook-in to what we did last Sunday night, and then we can go on to more new material. Uh, The assertions that he makes are in the first part of the letter to the church at Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, and we spent just a a moment talking about what that means. There was no one more holy on earth than Jesus Christ. And of course, this is the Holy One. And the thing that really comes to mind with regard to that is, I'm going to be judged by His standard. I'm going to be judged by His holy life. He had and lived a perfect life. And as you've heard me say a number of times, He never said the wrong thing. He never did the wrong thing. He never thought the wrong thought. His life was the perfect and holy life. And our our life's going to be judged by that perfect and holy life. And that really is a standard that we should live up to as best as we possibly can. No one is perfect, but Jesus was. And his life was the holy one, the devoted one. And then he's also described as the true one. And the first thing that comes to mind when thinking about Jesus as being the true one, you think about not only his pure life, but also he's the true Messiah. Uh, He is the true bread of life, and the teaching which he gave is the teaching that sustains, sustains us spiritually, and he is the vine to which we are joined, John chapter 15 and verse 11, the true vine, and he is the true light, John chapter 1 and verse 9. So when he talks about him being the holy one, the true one, that had special meaning for them, and that has special meaning for us. These are some of the assertions that were made about the Christ to the church at Philadelphia in this very fine letter, Revelation chapter 3. But notice also, he makes mention of this matter, the key of David. And as you see it here, who has the key of David? The key of David, of course, is an Old Testament type of expression. We found it in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 22, and we analyzed that, and we looked back at that. And I use the term gatekeeper. He's the type of gatekeeper. Uh, He's the one who has absolute control and authority over his church. And it is only through him that one is going to be admitted into the kingdom. He has the keys. The one who has the keys has the authority to open the door and close the door. And, of course, this was the idea in Isaiah with regard to the expression in Eliakim, the steward of Hezekiah. And in this instance, we see that Jesus is the door. He's also the one that has the keys, the authority. And no one's coming into the kingdom without the permission of Jesus Christ. He has absolute authority over his church. 
And everyone must meet the terms of entrance. If you do not, it doesn't matter how pious you are. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished in this life. If you have not met the terms of entrance into the kingdom of God, you will not be admitted by the one who has the keys of David, and that is Jesus Christ. And let there be no mistake about it. uh, When we're talking about the terms of entrance, we're talking about hearing the word of God and repenting of sin. And letting that word produce the faith in our hearts that we confess our faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and that we're baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. Just as the Bible teaches, immersed in water so that our, t- our sins will be remitted or washed away. Why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins? Calling on the name of the Lord was the instruction that was given to Saul of Tarsus by Ananias, Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. All of these thoughts come to mind when we're thinking about this phrase, this idiom, has the key of David. He has the terms of entrance into the kingdom, his New Testament church. But then there's another assertion, and I've just briefly talked about it, and they're wonderful. I get excited talking about these particular matters. Who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And that sort of leads us into the very next uh, discussion which he gives to us. He says, now I know your works. And that verse 8 has always been a, a sobering thought to me, a fact that I feel like we ought to stop and reflect on just a little bit. And that fact being that God does know in a divine way the works which we are doing, that which we do and that which we do not do. We cannot fool God. Uh, We cannot cover up what we do before God. He knows our heart. He knows our mind. He knows what we do. He knows what we don't do. That was true with the church at Philadelphia. That was true with all the congregations. And that is true with the congregation here at this place tonight. And that's true with every congregation of the body of Jesus Christ. He knows our works. Now the original word there, oida, I know, means that he has a divine knowledge. He has a knowledge that is through and through, and he knows completely what the church at Philadelphia was doing and was not doing. And so because of that great assertion of his knowledge about them, he gives them certain assurances. And I was getting into this last Sunday night, the assurances which Jesus gave the church at Philadelphia in our Sunday night seminar. He says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Uh, here's one of the promises that he gives them, and this is one of the, the first promises, and an open door conveys the idea of opportunity to work. I'm going to give you an opportunity to work. I'm going to give you an open door, and I'm going to open that door up, and you will be able to go through that, and no one will be able to shut it. I'm sure it's the result of their dedication and devotion. He's opening up that door for the church at Philadelphia at their special location, their strategic geographic place, because this is a hard-working congregation, and I want them to work, God is saying, and I'm giving them an opportunity to do that. And I just think about all the open doors that we've had through the years. Uh, I think about the open doors that I've had in my life, and you might think about the open doors that you have faced and had opportunity to consider that did you go through them, did you take advantage of them? And I think, of course, that, and I made a special point about this, and that is that the open door was there not only in preaching the gospel, but there was more to it than that, I think. Preaching the gospel and teaching others the gospel of Christ, 
But that open door, that opportunity to work, no doubt included cheering up another person who really needed it, or lightening the burden and the load of one, to speak a word of love to an individual, to show kindness to one who is in need of such, to give understanding to an individual who really needed understanding and listening to, and thus help the community see the great value of the body of Christ, the church of Christ. I'm going to give you an open door, and you can go through that door. The open door because of your devotion and your dedication to help the community see just how great the church of the Lord really is. And all we need to do that tonight, brethren. We need to go through the open door. We need to let the community see here are people who follow Christ. Here are people who love the Bible, the Word of God, the teaching of Jesus Christ. That's what they follow. That's what they go by. That's their authority in life. They live that in their lives, and we can see that exemplified in the way they live and how they conduct their business. It's showing the community, the value, the intrinsic value and worth of the church of Jesus Christ. There's an open door there that we ought to take advantage of every day that we live. And I hope that we do. And he's telling the church the door for you. He says, now you have a little strength. And I think what he was telling them is that you are not a great, large congregation. You're small in strength. But even though you're small in strength, I'm going to give you the ability and going to give you the opportunity to accomplish great things for his name and for his sake. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, I'm in verse 8, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. You have a little strength there, a little power, but you'll be able to accomplish great things for the Lord. And then this important point that I... You have kept my word. Now that phrase is used twice in this letter to the church at Philadelphia. You have a little power, and you have kept my word which is certainly something of the quality and the faithfulness which they had with regard to their obedience and devotion to Christ. Uh, They had kept the word of God, and they have not compromised that word. And then he says, Thou hast not denied my name. Another attribute to the church at Philadelphia. And I, I just think that's a wonderful thing for us to learn tonight that here were people who faced persecution, especially from the synagogue of Satan, as he describes it in verse 9, and yet they had not denied the name of Christ. They were loyal to the Christ, that divine name by which we've been called, the preeminent name. There's no other name by which we may be saved than that of Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Behold, I'll make them which say they are Jews to worship before thy feet, verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Well, evidently, as I lessons, and I mentioned again tonight, there evidently was a very vicious and a very stubborn element of Judaism there in Philadelphia. And he's saying, even though they've caused problems for you, they are going to see that you will be victorious, that you will be victorious over them. And I think in some respects he's getting at the idea because you will teach them the truth and they will be converted. Now, obviously, all of them will not. Some will say no to the invitation of Christ to accept him as the Savior and the Messiah. But they will overcome this stubborn, rebellious attitude 
which these Jews had. They should have been people who would look back into the old law and see Christ reflected in that old law. When they saw in the book of Leviticus how that the priest would go into the holy place and sprinkle the altar with the blood of the sacrifice, how that that was but a, a type of the real sacrifice that was going to hang on Calvary's cross and be the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. They should have been able to go back into the Old Testament prophecies and see that suffering servant Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 53, or that child that was born in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, or that church which was described in Isaiah chapter 2, and relate that to New Testament fulfillment. They should have understood the word of the Old Testament to see how that the New Testament now is the fulfillment of that, and they should have been receptive to see and embrace the teaching of Christ and the fulfillment in the pages of the New Testament. And some of them, I believe, would. And some of them would say no to that. They would describe themselves as Jews, but they're really not. They're not God's people because they have rejected the Christ of God. And when you will not Christ, and you will not accept the teaching of Christ, then you do not accept God. If you don't show then you don't respect the Christ of the church. And if you don't respect the Christ of the church, then you don't respect the God of the Christ, which is God the Father. If you're rejecting Christ, you're And one cannot be, no matter what one's heritage might be, considered a part of God's people when you turn away from his plan and his Christ. He tells us now, Behold, synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, verse 9 behold I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. That's much of what this book is about if I might take a, just a brief break from my outline and what I plan tonight. Much of what the book of Revelation is about is the victorious church of Jesus Christ. That no matter what the enemy might be, no matter how vicious the enemy might become, it is the church of the Lord who is victorious in the end. Because Christ is on their side. And he's saying in this regard, even here in Revelation 3 and verse 9, the church at Philadelphia will be victorious if they remain faithful and if they will keep his word. Because you have kept my word, verse 10, about patience and endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, verse 11. Now, I don't think that that has reference to the second coming of Christ. And I don't believe, like a lot of modern writers do, that the people of the first century thought that the second coming was imminent. And I don't believe, like some writers do, that Paul would write that the second coming of Christ was going to be in that particular day, in that particular generation. I think what he's saying there, it will be soon, it will be sudden, and it will be somewhat representative. Now, when Christ does come again, why, every knee shall bow, and every eye shall see. And he expresses that thought in the book of Revelation. There will be no doubt the Christ is come and the end of the world has come. But now sometimes his coming is described as judgment upon the wicked, the support of uh, the righteous. And I think that's more what he has in mind here. I am coming soon. Not the second coming. 
John didn't know when the second coming was, and Christ has not revealed it. I'll tell you what he did reveal about the second coming. He'd come as a thief in the night when you least expect it, when everything would be the same as it was. And then the Christ will come. Why, the very parable of the, five, the ten virgins, the five foolish and five wise, was Jesus' effort to help us prepare and get ready for the second coming. For no one knows when the second coming will be. I think his reference here to I come quickly has reference to his judgment upon the wicked and his support of the churches during a very difficult time of persecution. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown." Now, the idea there is to remain faithful. I'm coming quickly. I'm going to come suddenly. And I'm going to come with judgment upon the wicked. And, of course, um, the second coming will be off sometime in the future. No one knows when that will be. Only God himself. But don't lose faith over these matters. Don't let someone else seize your crown. And the idea there is... Not so much what the one who seizes obtains, but what the one who lost his crown loses. You're going to lose a great deal. It's not so much what he's going to gain, it's what you're going to lose, and you reflect on that. Do not allow that to happen. Reflect on all these wonderful assurances concerning Christ and these assurances that Christ has given you as the church that belongs to Christ. And don't lose that eternal crown. Now you and I need to stop for on that matter because all of us face the temptation in that regard. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I buffet my body daily, lest I too become a castaway. There's always the potential that I would throw my faith away and freely choose to follow that which is wicked. And here is the admonition. Don't let that happen. Don't lose your crown. You think about what you're losing. The emphasis is not what the one who takes the crown gains, but the emphasis is what the one loses when forfeiting one's eternal life. Don't lose the crown. I wonder what Demas thinks about the matter now. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, Paul said. Demas was at one time a faithful child of God. What about now? What does he think about that lost faith now? I'll tell you what he thinks about. He'd give everything in the world to do it all over again. He's lost his crown through unfaithfulness. Don't let that happen. The church at Philadelphia is being warned about that matter. Now I'd like to talk a little be brief with regard to the rewards of faithfulness and they come in two categories. I think there's a valuable lesson for us tonight, and I'm thinking about particularly verse 12. And they come in two varieties. Uh, the rewards of faithfulness that he mentions to the church at Philadelphia, one has reference to living life here and now. And that's the way Christianity is. Christianity pertains to how we live here and now, but also... Christianity pertains to life after this one, life in eternity. And so the rewards of faithfulness are delineated for us, and we need to consider them carefully. The blessings that we receive here and now, and the ultimate blessings that we will receive in the life hereafter. And he tells them in very picturesque language, vivid detail, 
some of the rewards of the faithful, the life to come and the here and now. And the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, I want to talk about those two words. I want to talk about pillar, and I want to talk about temple. Often, the term pillar is used to describe the individual who was stalwart and supportive and useful. He is useful in the kingdom of God. In fact, uh, Timothy heard from Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 about the church as the pillar and the ground of the truth. And it's a figurative term to help us understand the support and the usefulness and the steadfastness that a pillar brings with it. This certainly would have vivid understanding in the minds of Greek culture and Roman culture as you have people who are now famous for their architectural feats where there are the Corinthian columns, there's the Doric columns, there's the Ionic columns that even architecturally we admire today. They're a source of beauty to behold, but yet they also are a means of support and steadfastness. He says, now you're a pillar. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple. He's the one that supports. Now in a land that had been plagued with earthquakes, and buildings would be shaken here and there. He is saying in that regard, you're going to be the pillar, and you're going to be the support. Sometimes people are referred to in this fashion. For example, in James chapter, uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, there is that discussion, you'll recall, about the um, problem of fellowship with the Gentiles who had obeyed the gospel. And, and then there was pillar, James, uh, James and Cephas and John. And he said in verse 9, who seemed to be pillars... Perceive the grace that was given to me. Uh, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised, and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Well, the point that brought this to my mind was the fact that he describes them this way. Peter, Paul describes certain men of faith as pillars. These are men who support the truth. These are uh, substantial individuals in the church of God. Here was James and John and Peter, and these men were pillars of the truth. And yet this issue comes up with regard to the Gentiles and fellowship. And they wanted us to preach the gospel to the, the Gentiles, and they would preach the gospel to the circumcised. And he just goes into that discussion. That's what a pillar is. A pillar is a noble distinction. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar, one who supports. You know what I think? I think we got far too many people who are not pillars. I think far too many who need support rather than are giving support. The pillar gives support. It is substantial. It is trustworthy. It is there to support and to hold up and to give help when the help is needed. But we have too many. They're the ones who need the support, and they come begging for the support, especially in difficult times. A pillar is always in his place. A pillar is always there to lend the support when it is needed. He does not support the church on Sunday and then allow it to collapse on Monday. The pillar does not support the church at the Lord's table and then let it down at the work table. You see, he does not support the church at home 
and then let it wreck his life and the home life everywhere else he goes. He is a constant, he is steadfast, he is loyal, and he's devoted. You know what I think? I think we need more pillars in the church of the Lord today. We need more people who will stand up for the truth and be the kind of people that God has told us. And it is plainly set before us what he wants us to be. We need more pillars. Now I want to talk about that term temple. And I'm looking at verse conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And I really think, and though I don't have the opportunity to discuss this at length as I would like to, he's talking about that wonderful city the Bible calls heaven. He will not only be a church here on earth, but he will be a pillar in heaven as well. You know a passage that I really love That is Psalm 27. And when I think about temple, I think about this verse. And this is a passage, Psalm 27, where David faces fear, but he also has great faith. And I encourage you to read Psalm 27. And the very difficult situation that David faces there, he faces enemies. Verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh... My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And he talks about the fact how God cares for him and how God protects him. And then he makes this statement that's so meaningful, I think, in verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that that will I that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now I think David's talking about He said, this is one thing that I really want. I want to go to heaven. And I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Now this English translation translated that inquire. But I think it could very well have been translated meditate. And meditate in the temple of the Lord. The permanency of it. A temple is a permanent place of worship. And so he says in this verse, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will be the support. You see, this is a reward of faithfulness. But let me hurry along. Never shall he go out of it. Now, the way that that phrase is written, we might miss it in the English translation. But it's cast in a, uh, almost, I guess we would say in English, a double negative here. He He's trying to say for emphasis sake, he will not go out indeed, he will not go out. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out. And that's probably a good way to translate that in verse 12. He won't go out, I'm telling you, he's not going out. Never shall he go out. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own name. Well, I have three coordinating conjunctions there, and. And this, and that, and that over there. So I've got to notice that and come to understand what he's talking about. The first thing he spoke of there is the name of God. I'm going to write on him the name of God. 
And you might think, I wonder what he's talking about there. He's talking about a reward of faithfulness. God is our Father, and we identify with Him, and we belong to Him, and we are His, and He will write on us. You see, there are blessings that are here and now, and there are blessings that we will receive over there. And the blessings that the church and the faithful will receive over there is the blessing that God and us, we identify with each other. You know, in where they crucified Jesus in verse 54, uh, that uh, centurion, he saw the earthquake and he saw all that was going on at the time of the crucifixion of Christ. He said, surely this was the Son of God. He saw that. He identified with that particular, that particular matter. And we identify with God. He's written his name on us. And we relate to him. We're identified with him. He is our Father. But now there's a second reference to the name. The name of the city. He says in, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. And once again, he's talking about heaven, the New Jerusalem. We read more about that in Revelation 21, don't we? About that new city. Now, the old city of Jerusalem had been destroyed about 30 years ago. The old city of Jerusalem is gone. The city of Jerusalem, Roman general Titus came in and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So the old city of Jerusalem is gone. He's not talking about a new physical city of Jerusalem. He's talking about the eternal city going to heaven. This is one of the rewards of faithfulness. One of the rewards of faithfulness is that the righteous, the children of God, will go be with him in heaven and that his name will be on them. What name? That name, the new Jerusalem. And what he's basically saying to help me understand this matter is the idea that's going to be my permanent address. That's going to be where I will live throughout eternity. I will be there forever and ever. And that's a reward of faithfulness. And I do not want to lose that. I remember when I was living in California. And I enjoyed California. It was a challenging work, and I enjoyed the church there, and I loved the people there, and I hear from them regularly, and, and uh, I enjoyed living out in that part of the country. My son and daughter-in-law live out there still. But somebody's always asking me, and they ask, where are you from? I heard that a lot. I said, well, I'm, I'm from Tennessee originally. And uh, I said, why were you asking? They said, well, you've got a certain accent. I said, I didn't know I had an accent. I said, oh, you've got an accent. Um, we can tell you're, you're not from here. Now, living here in East Texas, they don't ask me that. Nobody asks me where am I from because I probably talk like an East Texan. I'll try to do better. Please excuse me. But at any rate, I probably sound a lot like an East Texan because nobody's asked me that. They're always asking me that. Now, this is not my permanent home, though. California was not my permanent address. There is a place, a reward for the righteous. The new address, the permanent address, is going to be that new Jerusalem, not that old city that was destroyed in 70 A.D., but that eternal place which the Bible calls heaven. And then there's another reference to name that I dare not miss tonight in verse 12. 
He says, never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The new name. I imagine the city of Philadelphia really related to that point because the city of Philadelphia had been through so many wars. They've been through so many difficulties it lasted all the way up into the Byzantine Empire. Uh, they were given un- any number of different names. With each new conqueror comes a new name. But he says, I'm going to give you my name. You know, when a bride, she takes on a different name. She assumes the name of the... And a new family is brought together by God and their devotion to one another. And so it is with the child of God, that new name, the name of Christ, that name is the name that directs me, that tells me is the name, that strengthens me, that gives me the power to live day by day as best I possibly can through obedient faith. It is that name that defeats my enemies. And helps me overcome the problems of life. And lets me know that I belong to him. And that I am his. I believe a great letter is a letter that's written to the congregation of Philadelphia. But when I read about it, I... And how much of that is personal to me. This new Jerusalem, which my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The he there, I think, makes that very personal. And the he there in that particular thing, there are rewards for faithfulness that you as a child of God need to pay particular attention to. If you have an ear, you need to hear. It's an old Bible way of expressing Listen up. Listen carefully to what God is saying to you. Here are opportunities that God has given you. He's opening up a door, and when God opens up a door, no man can shut, and when God shuts a door, no man can open it. And look for those opportunities and take advantage of them. Renew your commitment by obeying His Word, and do not give up on the Word of God. Never deny Him. Don't lose your crown. You personally must remain faithful to the Word of God. And look, and when the allurements of this life become so attractive to you, you stop and think, let's go back to the Word of God. Let me go back and look at what I'm losing here. Let me go back to the Word of God and try to rekindle in my heart and my mind what I'm giving up if I go over to these material things of life as they now become so attractive to me and I'm losing my devotion and my dedication to God. Don't let... The opportunity come up where you lose your crown. And then realize, with I can be a pillar. I can support truth. I can support the church. I can help other people be faithful to God. And what greater, what greater thing is there for us? to so live our lives and teach other people so that they will go to heaven too. What greater opportunity do we have to grow 
and with God's help to be a pillar in the temple of the living God. If you're not a child of God, to repent of sin and confess your faith in Christ and to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Oh, what a great message it is. And what a great opportunity and to live the faithful Christian life and to live it faithfully, successfully, all the way to the days whereby we hear God welcome us into the gates of glory. Now, if there's a need tonight, brethren, let's fix it. If there's a problem in your life, if there's a difficulty that needs to be straightened out, let's straighten it out all on the basis of God's Word. And let's do it now. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?